Welcome to the Zenith Hour podcast, where we discuss what defines success and what it takes to achieve that. In this podcast series, we invite industry leaders to discuss their journey and the challenges they face along the way. I'm your host, D. King, the founder and CEO of Zenith Trading. Good morning. It's a beautiful Saturday. We are here doing this podcast today, and I have my friend, Sean Nagpal, who is the owner of Coriander Restaurant in New York. I'm your host, D. King, and this is episode two called Forbes to Finance. So, Sean, thanks for coming to this podcast episode. I am really excited to speak with you because we've talked a lot in the past. We've been working together for over six months now. I would love to hear your stories. I would love to hear your background and anything else that you can share to the audience that they wouldn't know about you um, without listening to this podcast. So tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited to be part of the inaugural couple of podcasts for, for Zenith Hour. It's super, super exciting. And I can't wait to have this conversation with you. Um, a little bit about myself. So as you mentioned, my name is Sean uh, from New York, Lower Westchester, more specifically, grew up here, raised here my whole life, and um, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. For outside of you know finance, what I do is I own a small restaurant group called Nagpal Restaurant Group. And our flagship business is Coriander Modern Indian, which is a seasonal fine dining South Asian, specifically North Indian uh, cuisine. I've been doing that for almost 10 years. And I opened the restaurant on a whim when I was uh, 23 years old. And I've been doing that ever since. And obviously, I'm into some other stuff, fun stuff, as you know, like, you know, finance, trading, investments. But the restaurant at the end of the day is my bread and butter, my baby, my passion. And it's what I plan to do for the rest of my life. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so you started this at 23 years old, right? Yeah. That, that's extremely young for starting a restaurant. And obviously, starting a restaurant isn't easy. So how did you even think about pursuing this career? So I'll tell you, it's a great story. And I love telling it because there's a lot of lessons in it. So just to give you a little foundational background. Uh, first, I actually went to school and went to college for finance. You know, my dream initially was to be, uh, you know, your classic Wall Street guy. That's who I wanted to be. That's what I grew up dreaming about becoming because my background wasn't the best. I grew up in a very low income part of Lower Westchester and, uh, you know, had a very good childhood in regards to my family. My parents always took care of me. They loved me. I never lacked anything that I wanted. Um, but, you know, we were just your classic low income household. My parents came here in the 80s you know, your classic immigrant story, not a lot of money in their pocket. We lived in a, you know, rat hole apartment, cockroaches everywhere, you know, all that. We don't need to get into all that because everyone knows how that story goes. But um, I wanted to be your classic Wall Street guy. So I went to school for finance, more specifically international business and investing and graduated and loved it. And I got my first job in one of my other passions, which is cars. I love cars and I love everything about them. And so my first job was actually at BMW, the car dealership. And I met a lot of people. Some of these, some of the people are actually in this group and still very close friends with Tilt this day. And what ended up happening was very quickly, they recognized that I had an MBA in finance and they threw me at the age, the tender age of 23 into the finance office and allowed me to learn and do finance for them. So I was put in a position where I was making a decent sum of money at a very young age. And I saved a lot of it because I was living at home and didn't have much to do. And some of my biggest finance wins came that way, actually. And some of the, some people in the group in Zenith know the story of when I got my first commission check, I blindly threw it all into basically four companies, Apple, Tesla, Facebook, and Amazon, which at the time I had no idea was probably the smartest financial move I ever made. But what I did was I did that. And then as I was working at BMW, I had recognized that, you know, although I loved working for corporate and I felt good wearing a suit and tie and I felt happy, my heart wasn't in it because I always grew up in a very entrepreneurial driven family. My dad was a photographer. 
and he had uh, opened a very, very small photo lab in Manhattan. And my mom, who was who started off as a restaurant hostess as her first job in this country, uh, ended up going into banking after she got her bearings, you know, learned the language of English very well. And to this day, she's a very, very successful banker. So, you know, the restaurant industry was something I always grew up with and being an entrepreneur and doing things on your own and learning how to start from the bottom and build things is something that I, I just grew up with. That's just who I am. That's who I have always been. That's the way that my family's always been. So at, at around 23, I remember told telling my dad that, hey, you know, dad, I really, really want to get into the restaurant industry. And the background to that is that my dad and my mom were in the restaurant industry as well. However, the truth is they were not good at it. We had two restaurants, both at different times, not together. And both of them had failed and failed pretty badly. And we lost a lot of money. My parents lost their life savings in it. And I remember very clearly one day sitting in my dad's restaurant when I was maybe 18 years old and my dad had his hand in his head and he just, his, his head in his hands, I apologize. And he just looked up at me and said, you know, I can't do this. I can't do this business. It's not for me. I don't know why I did it. And it broke my heart because I said, you know, this is the man that raised me. This is the man that puts food on our table and he's quitting and he's failing. And I don't know how to take that. And that really stuck with me as a person, kind of really molded me into the person I am today. I said to my dad at 23, dad, I want to open a restaurant. And what he said to me was, uh, listen, all that money that you saved working at BMW, all the money you have in your bank account, what I want you to do is go put it in a brown paper bag, put it in our driveway and light it on fire. And I just started laughing and I said, well, why would I do that? And he said, because the return you're going to get on the money that you've burned is better than you're gonna get in the restaurant industry because the restaurant industry has no profits to be seen. It's a hustle industry. You're gonna have no family life. You're gonna have no social life. You're never gonna get married. Don't do it. So I said, okay, I won't do it. Little did he know I had already done it. I had already signed a lease for the location that I'm currently in at 23 years old behind his back with an actually this guy, I, I give him credit for everything in my life. This guy named Mark Chin, um, he is an, an, Asian, an Asian gentleman who gave me a chance at 23 years old with zero financial backing, with no experience that he could vet, obviously, and just took a whim. He said, you know, I like you and I think you're going to do well. I think you got the mentality and the hustle and I'm going to give you a chance. So the reason that he gave me a chance was because he said that I was very, very direct with him. I told him the honest truth that I don't, I don't have a restaurant. I don't have a lot of money, but I'm willing to dump everything I do have into this business. So he gave me a chance. And what this guy did when I specifically told him not to do this, I said, whatever you do, do not send any information to my house. Do not send anything to this fax number. Do not send anything to this email address because my dad was monitoring everything. Obviously it's his house. Of course, the first thing he does is he faxes over a completed and signed lease, executed lease right to my dad's office and my dad finds it. He comes rushing out of the house and says, what the hell did you do? Didn't I just tell you not to open a restaurant? And that's the story of how I ended up getting into that lease, which was oh, a no. point of contention for my dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad did not talk to me for probably two months because he's like, I cannot believe you went behind your, my back, signed a 10-year lease. You just locked yourself into... You know, I don't even know what kind of financial <laughs> hole you just put yourself in. And now you have no choice but to do it. And then he says, did you put the deposit down? I'm like, yeah, I did. He goes, how many months? I'm like, I put down three months. Like three months? Who the hell puts down a three-month deposit on a restaurant? And I was like, I did. And he's like, oh my God, you're an idiot. So, so that's kind of the story of how I opened the restaurant. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Two things I got that, from that. Number one, would you say Mark was the investor into your business when you first started? I would say in some senses, yeah, because he didn't financially invest into the business, but he emotionally invested into me. And, you know, you got to understand this is a very well-to-do, educated and successful real estate man. You know, he owns multiple properties and this was one, just one of them. And I just cold, I just cold knocked on the door and showed up and said, I want to lease your place. And he sat down with me, listened to my pitch, looked over my business plan, which I had prepared. And he loved it. And he loved me. And he gave me a chance. Wow, that's awesome. 
I think yeah. all the stars aligned for you, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was the perfect storm. That's the honest truth. My second question on your story is, obviously, both of your parents had two restaurants, right? So they, they were separate restaurants. They both didn't succeed in running them, and they were in a bad spot. Now, opening your own restaurant is a huge leap of faith, right? Yeah. What did you take from your parents' restaurants and what mistakes did you learn from theirs that you implemented or changed in your own restaurant to make it more? So successful? I'll tell you, the first restaurant wasn't a failure because they were bad business people. The first restaurant was a failure because of a bad partnership and bad luck. The bad partnership being, and God bless his soul, he's still a very close family friend now. But sometimes you have to recognize that no matter what you do, no matter how good friends you are, no matter how much you click socially, you may not click business-wise. And that's a major issue when you open a business. You cannot be two of the same people trying to do the, the same thing in one business. If you're both good at trading, you're probably going to be terrible partners because one of you needs to be good at trading and the other one needs to be good at probably analysis or technical analysis or fundamental analysis. You've got to be, you've got to be the yin and the yang. You cannot just be two of the same peas in a pod and think just because you guys can watch the game together and you guys are best friends outside and everything clicks that you're going to click when it comes to money. It's not the truth. It's as, as a matter of fact, it's the furthest thing from it. Secondly, you definitely need luck on your side. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they are bullshitting you. Anyone that says, oh, you know, luck is when opportunity meets perseverance or whatever that quote is. Yeah, that's true to an extent, but luck is a big part of business. You know, another quote that I hate is, you know, a real man makes his own luck. No, bullshit. Luck finds you sometimes and it works for you and sometimes it doesn't. And there's two types of luck. There's good luck and there's bad luck. And unfortunately for my dad, he had bad luck. Um, and what had happened was that first restaurant with the partnership was one part. The second part was that a rock slide, literally a rock slide took the restaurant out. I mean, just crushed it. And at the time we had governor Pataki who was the governor of New York, he deemed it a disaster zone. And my dad just said, you know what? I don't want to reopen the restaurant. I'm not going to build something from scratch when I already had it. Let's just move on to another one. So then he moved on to the second one. And again, another thing I learned from that one was sometimes timing is far more important than your product even. What had happened was he opened the restaurant in 2006 to a rave review from the New York Times and got tons of business, but what happened in 2008? The financial markets crashed, people were losing homes, people were losing jobs. So within a year and a half of opening a restaurant and him feeling like he finally had made it in this country, the financial systems fell out from under us. And within a year and a half, the restaurant went from being slightly profitable, which in the restaurant industry is considered good, to deeply negative and an extreme stress on not only him, but my family, our relationships, our financial position, and, and everything. And he decided to close it down relatively quick. So I think that restaurant lasted only about four or five years. Wow, that's extremely unfortunate. Yeah. It's great that you brought that up because I'm actually going to talk about the book that I mentioned in my first episode in, in the podcast series, uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. One part of it, he mentions that it takes 10,000 hours to master something. But there's actually another part of it where he mentions a lot of the successful people were at the right place at the right time. They didn't just, it wasn't just hard work and, and work ethic and blood, sweat and tears that they put in, but they were also at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Right. So when Bill Gates started Microsoft, he was literally at the beginning of the dot-com period. He was a first mover in there. So I think yeah. you brought up a great point with that because most businesses fail. And it could be due to multiple different reasons. It could be due to their service. It could be due to their product. It could be due to their marketing. It can also just be due to the fact that they opened it at the wrong time. Yeah. Definitely do agree with what you said. And it seems that you were able to open it up after the financial crisis, right? Was it 2010? Yes. Uh, my The restaurant that I have now? Yeah. I went into contract 2011 and then we opened in 2012. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So now you're looking at 10 years of an amazingly successful restaurant chain. You kind of went right off the bat, <laughs> signing on the lease at 23. Now you're going over a decade. It's definitely not all easy during, during that run. So what types of failures did you experience while you were running the restaurant that made you think so, twice about opening it? 
So I will say that initially, as you mentioned, and going back to luck and timing, uh, you know, when I had first opened the restaurant, the timing was excellent. You know, we had just come out of a very bad financial situation. People were looking up and trying to build the economy back up. So my timing was good in that sense. But also when you want to add in the truth and hard work and, you know, making sure that you have blood, sweat and tears, et cetera, et cetera. Due diligence is extremely important just as it is in, in trading and investing. I ensured that the place that I opened my restaurant, which is a small village in lower Westchester called Larchmont, New York, very high disposable income, uh, very wealthy and have a lot of European transplants, which spells a good recipe for success when it comes to ethnic food, because Europe tends to have a much more open mind when it comes to cuisine. And obviously having high disposable income is a big help. So that was one thing initially, before we talk about failure, when I say that, that was one thing I experienced right off the bat. So I ensured all that was in place first. You know, I didn't want to repeat the mistakes that I've seen in the past from my, from my family's businesses. However, as we all know, history does repeat itself. And I, I initially started off with a huge bang. The restaurant was super busy, was very profitable, financially very, very good. And I decided I wanted to expand because I said, well, what does a businessman do when he starts making a lot of money? You start to grow, right? You want to grow. You want more. I went and took a chunk of change and I said, I'm going to open another restaurant. And I went ahead and I found a big city in Westchester called White Plains, which is basically known to be the Manhattan outside of Manhattan, you know, big skyscrapers, tons of chain restaurants, lots of hotels. It's a corporate hub. You know, you've got IBM there, you've got AB headquarters, you've got a lot of business there. So naturally as a business owner, you say, well, I've got clientele built in. So I went ahead and I opened a second restaurant there and I did it big. I spent a lot of money, hired de designers, I hired mixologists, consultants, technology consultants, everything you could think of to really blow it out of the water. And when it was all said and done, it was a stunning restaurant. I had an outstanding menu. I had the top chefs from all over the country coming in to interview for me. And I opened it. And I swear to God, this is no lie. And this was the moment I knew I screwed up. Day one, it was crickets. Not a single customer walked through the door. Man. And, I, and I said, what the hell? How? What did I? I was just dumbfounded. I said, I don't understand. I just put a lot of money into this business. And my other restaurant is kicking ass. What the hell? There should be name recognition. People should have been lined up. And I did everything I could. Branding, marketing, everything. In that moment, Doug, I swear, I knew in the pit of my stomach and in my heart that this wasn't going to work. And I hate admitting that. Now I'm proud of admitting it. But in that moment, I fought every bit of my intuition. And that was the biggest mistake I could have made. You know, intuition is so important in the business world. It's, it's really that sixth sense. And if you, if you follow it, most, most of the time it's right. What I had recognized after running that business for a few years, I ran it for five years. I didn't do my due diligence again. I thought that money was enough due diligence. And I said, no matter what, my brand is there. I put a lot of money in. I have a good chef. I have a good menu. People will come. And I totally decided that I was going to skip doing the proper demographic research, even though I thought I did, but I really didn't. I was just trusting myself and I was cocky. And I said, no matter what, people will come because they know me now. And I didn't realize that White Plains was the wrong demographic for my style of business. I'm a high-end personalized service restaurant. And White Plains is a hustle bustle, super busy corporate geared city. So my lunch business was outstanding. It was high volume, but zero profit because lunch is very quick. People don't drink during lunch. People don't order a lot during lunch. And my dinner business was essentially non-existent. When it did exist, I didn't have staff on because I didn't think it existed. So it was a mess. It was chaotic. I wasn't keeping people on staff because I didn't think I had the business. And then when the business would come in, I didn't have the staff. So service was sloppy. Cost was overrunning because I had huge overheads because we're in a big city now. And I had celebrity chefs. I had mixologists I had to take care of. I had multiple hostesses. I had, you know, open table eating out of my palm. I had then Grubhub and Uber Eats turned into this new thing. And they started calling me and taking business from me. And blah, 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 you know? So everything that could have went wrong, went wrong. 
And five years in, I said, all right, I got to get out of this. And I decided to put it up for sale. And I did. And I had to eat a massive loss and recognize that no matter what you do, no matter how much money you make, no matter how successful you think you are, failure is right around the corner if you're not keeping it in check. And I didn't keep it in check and it bit me in the ass pretty hard. It's funny you mentioned that because in New York, in Manhattan, you see the same thing, right? So the types of restaurant businesses and how they operate on Park Avenue, for example, is very different than the types of restaurants you'll see in Queens. On Park Ave, it's all corporate. So typically yeah. lunch is very busy. You have lines, you have takeout. But during dinner, no one's really eating there because everyone is home, whether they live yeah. in the city or, or they live outside of the city. Especially in New York, a lot of people, some of them live in Jersey. So they only commute to New York specifically for their job. Once they're out, exactly. they're out. They're not really having dinner uh, unless it's happy hours, for example. It's it's a very different demographic, like you mentioned, for White Plains. Without doing the due diligence, you set yourself up for failure just because of that. And yep. another thing I wanted to add to that, you've been in Zenith since inception. You understand how I've always mentioned that trading reflects your own behavior, right? It's, yeah. it's very psychological, emotional. And what you do in trading and how you trade reflects how you are as a person. Your situation with opening that second restaurant and putting everything that you could into it, making the best that you could, it reminded me of my trading in October. When I first took a $700 portfolio in August, all the way to $60,000, $63,000. And I lost $50,000 in two weeks. Feel yeah. free to agree or disagree. I think we shared similar feelings during that time where we were kind of euphoric and, and high off of our own success. Yep. And that's what led to the failure eventually, right? So Absolutely. It, it's very similar. And it's funny how I've connected trading with your restaurant opening. And, but the human behavior is still the same behind the, the two scenarios. At the end of the day, consumer, human, financial behavior is all interconnected because confidence is such a drug. You know, it's, it's a good drug in the sense that just like any drug in moderation and when you wield it the right way, but when you rely on it, it turns into a crutch. And at some point it turns into something that could really, really bring you down. Because if you don't have the ability to control that, or you don't have the ability to see through your own vanity, then you will absolutely fall on your ass. There's no way around it. And you have to, because if you don't fall on your ass, if you don't experience failure, then you're not going to ever understand what success is. I hate to sound like a cliche, but it's, it's the truth. And what that failure has taught me was you have to own failure. For the longest time after that, I was extremely depressed. I was, and I say that, I say that with open, with, with, with absolute open arms, anyone can ask me why. I was extremely depressed because I said, I thought I was a hot shot. I thought I was the next big thing. And here I am blowing everything I've earned from my first restaurant on the second restaurant that looks better, feels better, tastes better, drinks better, the people look better inside and it was a total flop and it was just shocking to me. And it put me in a position where I lost confidence. I didn't understand if it was me or it was my plan. I couldn't figure out if I, I was even coming up with conspiracy theories. Was someone out to get me? Did I have a rival that just put me out on my ass? Was it, was it something else? And you really, really get into your own head sometimes when you mess up, but it took a long time for me to come back from that. And when I did, I recognized that owning failure is so much more important than owning success. Because if you can own your failure and you can say, yeah, I failed, nobody can touch you. Nobody can say anything about you. Nobody can use a fail your failures or your weaknesses as anything to expose you with, number one, or to take advantage of or leverage against, against you. Because now you're open arms and saying, yeah, I, I messed up. And there's nothing you or anybody else can tell me that I didn't all, I don't already know because I was in the thick of it when I did, you know, coming around and experiencing failure, but also owning it is so, so important. And I think owning failure is what actually took my current, my, my legacy restaurant, which is the one I have now to the next level. Because when I came back from that and I went back to my original restaurant, I knew what I had to do. I knew what I had to change. I knew what it was that I messed up. Now, five years later, 
we're coming up on 10 years in this restaurant, it's stronger and more successful than ever. But I don't think I would have had that if I didn't have that failure. And I agree. And that that's essentially the entire theme of this whole podcast series. And what I was going over in the first episode, it's all about failure. And you can never truly succeed unless you actually experience failure, because you'll never know what it's like to succeed. You'll never know the gratification that you feel. You'll never learn from the mistakes. Because if you're not failing, then what mistakes are you going to make? It, it's definitely a theme throughout this entire podcast series. And I'm glad that you brought it up. Talking about failures. Now you've experienced some failure in the first few years of your restaurant. Let's actually fast forward to 2020, where yeah. we suddenly had a global pandemic, which wreaked havoc on all types of restaurants, essentially every brick and mortar business that you can think of. How did that affect your business? How did you transition and implement new strategies to avoid failing and going out of business? I will proudly take credit for figuring this one out relatively quick. So quick background, which you guys are going to find funny for all of you listening, is that I'm not a paranoid person. I'm actually a very laid back, very kind of go with the flow. I'm not going to you know, bother people to do things. I'm not a pushy guy. I'm very chilled out. However, in January, probably late January, early February, when the COVID rumbles were kind of, you know, getting a little louder and louder, I kept joking around with my sister, who's a nurse, and my wife, and said, and by the way, I had just, just become a father. My wife had just given birth in late, late December. Actually, Christmas Day, she went into labor. The next day, she gave birth to my son. So we were in a position where we were already stuck at home. And, you know, it's winter. And the restaurant business is slow in January and February. So I kind of took the month off and I said, I'm going to spend time with my wife and my newborn. And I said, you know, that's weird. There's this kind of this, this disease or virus or whatever you might want to call it. And I don't really know what to do with it, but I have a gut feeling that this isn't going to be good. There's just a, I don't know what it is. My, my gut's telling me something's wrong. So I kept joking around with my sister and saying, you know, can you steal me some masks from your hospital? And she's like, Sean, you know what? If there was a problem, I know I'm a nurse. And I said, well, I don't think you know. I think that you're ignoring this. Let's fast forward to March. I was the guy that by first week of March, my basement was a doomsday bunker. I swear to God, Doug, I had toilet paper, paper towels, diapers, <laughs> powdered iced tea, powdered. I mean, it was stupid the amount of crap I bought at Restaurant Depot. And for those of you don't, that don't know what Restaurant Depot is, it's the commercial wholesale grocery store for restaurants. I mean, you can't buy one toilet. It's, it's Costco on steroids. You can't even buy a 48 pack. You buy like a hundred pack there. It's totally commercial warehouse. You have to have a wholesale license to shop there. And so I went to Restaurant Depot and I just stocked up on everything I could think of, bleach, hand sanitizer, like anything. When the pandemic had hit full on, I was fully stocked. My wife and I were just like, holy crap. She was like, you were, you were right. And I can't tell you, God, I wish I was smart when it came to the stock market back then. Man, I would have been a billionaire by now, but, <laughs> you know, I would have pulled a Bill Ackman, you know, I would have shorted everything. But anyway, so for the restaurant, because I had that gut feeling, I had already in the first week of March started training my staff to go takeout heavy because we weren't really a super takeout heavy restaurant. We were more of a fine dining, high end experience. So I started training my staff and I said, look, if, if this is going to hit and people are going to sit at home for a little while or be worried to come out, we need to start focusing on takeout. So what I did immediately was I started to focus on takeout. I started branding and marketing a new takeout business for us. I started doing family style meals. I started doing, all right, $100 will get you three entrees, two appetizers, bottle of wine, blah, blah, blah. You know, you get the drift of what I was doing. I started marketing that heavy. And then once we announced the lockdown, we were already in full-fledged takeout mode and we were very comfortable with it. And we understood how to handle the volume. I took it a step further and I decided to not work with Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, or any of these guys, because one, I had the experience in my White Plains restaurant of how much of their business, how much of your business they take from you. Although yes, they do give you business, but the trade-off wasn't worth it for me, may have been worth it for other restaurants. I decided I wasn't gonna go that route. And I built out an online ordering platform for my restaurant and I did it myself. And I just encouraged my community and said, if you guys order online through me, I'll give you free dessert every time you order. Please don't use the third-party apps because I need to get through this. My community supported me, backed me up. And that's how we adapted to the situation. 
I was one of the first restaurants in town to start serving to-go drinks and selling beer and wine out of the restaurant to go. I also started to push out curbside delivery and no contact delivery. I was the first restaurant on the block to start doing QR code menus. That is probably one of my biggest moments in my life where I, I listened to my gut and it paid off big time because I can't tell you how many restaurants looked at me and said, what are you doing? Why do you have lines at the door during COVID? And I said, well, because I instantly adapted to the takeout model. I instantly understood that people were not going to want to talk to me, not going to want to touch me, not going to want to open doors. We just use common sense. Keep the doors open. Do curbside delivery. Don't do any more cash payments. Switch everything to Apple Pay. Don't even take credit cards, physical credit cards anymore. Force people to either prepay or bring their phones in. And all those things paid off in a big, big, big way. Furthermore, what, what, what it really did for me is now, as we've started to rotate back to dine-in and people are starting to come back in and starting to act a little bit more normal, my takeout business has sustained because people discovered the restaurant that hadn't discovered it before. So now I've got this robust takeout business and I've got my original dine-in business coming back. So I'm really looking forward to, to the rest of 2021 and further 2022 to see how the business, how I'm going to handle this new, this new level of business I have, because year over year, we are actually up. And I would say that that's probably not a surprise in the restaurant industry. A lot of people paint the picture that the restaurant industry was destroyed, but I'm here to tell the truth. And honestly, if you knew what you were doing and you adapted the right way, you actually made more money. Maybe if you didn't make more profit, but you definitely increased your revenues during COVID, if you knew what you were doing. I'm going to touch on that last point you said, if you knew what you were doing. This is obviously a very sensitive topic to, to discuss, especially with the restaurant industry. And being a native from New York, you see how much business has died when, within restaurants, especially in areas like Chinatown. These are restaurants that have been open for over 50 years who have built this brand and has been part of the community for so long and suddenly they're gone. Yeah. And it's so unfortunate to see, but thought that I was always playing around with the, the entire time while the pandemic was wreaking havoc on the world was it actually forced innovation in a way, yeah. adapting to the environment, to the new environment that you're now in, which you can't control. Most businesses in the restaurant industry, a lot of them take cash. Yeah. And they never adapted over the years to taking credit cards or online payments. The businesses that didn't transition into into that new uh, environment eventually failed. They never transitioned into focusing more on delivery and takeout and putting more resources into that. They just never adapted. And that's what had caused some of the restaurants to fail. People at home are still ordering delivery and takeout because yes. most people still don't want to cook. If they do have the time, they would probably learn some cooking, learn some recipes, put it on TikTok, things like that. Majority are still ordering delivery and takeout. Even working at Yelp, for example, we've seen a huge increase in takeout and delivery searches uh, since the pandemic started. Yeah. It's about adapting to that. And you also mentioned beer and wine to go. That's also something I noticed about restaurants doing. They started providing cocktails that you can order for delivery. Yeah. Obviously it depends on, on your vicinity's regulations and things like that. But overall you think of these new innovative ideas on how you can continue to keep your customers and still attain new customers. Yeah. And I think to touch on your point about businesses in Chinatown and you know, more in a more broad sense, Manhattan, I think that that's a unique situation and a very unfortunate one because Manhattan is a transient crowd, right? At the end of the day, a lot of, a lot of suburbanites that go to work there and don't come back after hours that we discussed before. A lot of the restaurants in Manhattan in, immediately lost that. And it's not right. like it trailed off. It just cut off instantly, right? So that's very difficult to deal with. Secondly, I think that the situation in Chinatown and Manhattan, I think unfortunately, especially if you wanna talk about Chinatown and although it's sensitive, it's the truth. I think there was a lot of racial driven situation when it came to that, um, which, yeah, you know, which, created, which created a lot of problems for those restaurants in Chinatown due to the fact that the virus initially started in China itself. And there was just an, a nonsensical connection made there and it's irrational, but unfortunately, people are ir irrational human beings. We're just, that's what we are. Right. And, and that's unfortunate. So that had a lot to do with it. But more importantly, one thing that people don't talk about, and it may come off as harsh, but it's the truth. I think a lot of the restaurants that went out, 
although they from the outside the facade was that they were doing well a lot of them were just teetering on the brink of unprofitable they weren't just where they weren't profitable because a lot of businesses although you might walk in and see 100 people inside maybe they weren't really making money maybe they were just doing you know making the rounds and you know and just getting by because at the end of the day manhattan is very expensive too so a lot of businesses that did go out i will say it's because they couldn't survive and if you want to talk about you know a darwinian theory it is about survival of the fittest and adapting and if you couldn't get through it because you were already on the brink this is what pushed you over and it's what took you out and unfortunately that's just the way the business world works you know you weed out the weak and what's not going to work is definitely not going to work if you don't have any more customers. So if you were just barely getting by on your regulars and now your regulars are gone too, you're gone. That's what's going to happen. And I saw I saw that firsthand in my area as well, but I got to imagine in Manhattan that was a big part of it too. Yeah, I definitely agree. Just to add to that, everyone is moving out of New York. Especially now that you don't have to go into the office, people were starting to move out of New York even my apartment, our apartment on Park Ave, we had so many tenants move out. When our lease ended, they actually tried to offer us a two-bedroom apartment at the same price we were paying for a one-bedroom apartment, yeah. which is insane. You notice a lot of people moving out, and that also contributes to the whole restaurant industry dying. And of course, racial attacks on Asians. I actually got into an altercation with my colleague at Yelp, where he jokingly said in a chat that his friend didn't want to go to a Chinese restaurant because they were Chinese. He thought it was sense. funny and he shared it to the team. Yeah. I said, how is this funny to you? Yeah. You are literally it's... being targeted as Asians just because the virus started in China, which has nothing to really do with us in the beginning. And number Absolutely. one, like, we're fighting a virus. We're not fighting each other's cultures or, or right. ethnicities. But yeah, that, that's definitely a conversation we can have an entire podcast episode about. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But I'm glad to see that you were able to adapt early, especially with the global pandemic. It's really unfortunate to see how many businesses did not survive during this. And a couple of my friends have had to close down their businesses as well. Their restaurants that literally just opened a couple of months before the pandemic. Yeah. And it was really sad to see. I kind of want to shift to the title of this podcast. So we named it From Forbes to Finance. I know that you were on the Forbes 30 under 30 list back in 2018. So yeah. tell me a little bit more about that. How did you get nominated there? So actually, that's a great that's a great story, and we'll run it down super quick. When I was, I think, twenty four or twenty five years old, I got invited to the first ever Forbes Thirty Under Thirty conference. I wasn't put on the list. I was put. I was invited to the conference itself. And the reason I was invited was because I had seen that the conference was available on um, their website. And I said, oh, that's interesting. They're gonna literally hold a conference to discuss how movers and shakers under the age of 30 are building, changing, disrupting the world. And I said, I wanna be a part of that. So I put in an inquiry and I said, how do I get to this conference? And they said, well, unfortunately you have to be invited. You cannot apply, but if you're interested, you know, we've received your inquiry. If we find that you would be an asset to this conference, we'd be happy to invite you. Sure enough, with a little bit of pushing and a little bit of constant determination and emailing these people, I got invited to the conference and I went there and met a lot of interesting people. Peter Thiel was one of them. I met Afrojack, he was a speaker there. Sarah Blakely was a speaker there. I met and rubbed shoulders with a lot of interesting people, people with 10 figure networks. And it was an eye-opening experience. And I said, this is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. Every year after that, they would hold the conference. They'd invite me because I had come to the inaugural conference. Then what had happened was as I was making connections with people, I had made some lifelong friends there. One of them happened to be in the finance world. He's a wealth manager and he was on the list as a wealth manager. He was on their finance 30 under 30 list and he won, you know, top 30 under 30 wealth manager in the country, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very successful guy. I kept badgering him and asking him like, hey, what does it take to get on this list? And he kept saying to me, dude, it's tacky. Don't ask me that because if you want to get on the list, Forbes will just find you. And if you're doing big things, they will put you on the list. So I gave up and I said, all right, you know what? Maybe it's not worth going after this accolade. I don't really think it's going to be worth it. 
like a year later or something like that, the nominations had come out. I got an email. I was in Europe with my wife. We were on vacation. I got an email while I was in Paris from Forbes, from their media division saying, do you have a headshot? And I said, yeah, I do have a headshot. Do you want it? And they said, yeah, we'd like to have a headshot of you. And can you answer some questions for us? I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. I answered those questions. And obviously in my head, I was saying, hmm, I wonder what this could be. And I was hoping that it was for that list. And sure enough, three days later, the list released and I was in the list for hospitality. And I just remember freaking out. I was bouncing up and down, screaming, saying, oh my God, I'm, I'm in Forbes magazine. I can't believe I made the list. And I decided to do some digging and find out how I got on the list. What had happened was I was nominated by a couple of couple of people, one being a very well-known chef named Chef J.J. Johnson. He owns Field Trip in Manhattan. He has three locations, one at Rockefeller Center, one, in, one somewhere else in the city, and then one in Harlem. And he was the executive chef for the Cecil in Harlem, which is a very well-known restaurant. He was also on the list in hospitality. And of course, my good friend Vikas, who was the guy I was talking about in finance, he nominated me. I guess the moral of the story was I never expected to make it because I just said, you know, I'm just one guy with this one little restaurant. Why the hell would I make this, you know, this list that's full of these basically multimillionaire 30-year-olds that are changing the world? I'm just one guy with a restaurant. But going back to the point, Forbes, they're very particular when it comes to due diligence. They don't tell you anything. They don't explain anything to you. They just dig, 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 dig. And they do interviews with people around you. They reach out to people in your, in your circle. They reach out to people in your industry to see if you're known, you're well-known, what's your reputation like. And then they make the final decision. And then the decision is made by a group of judges, some celebrity judges, some regular judges, some you know, business moguls. And then they decide if you're worthy of that list. And if you are, then they put you on. But the truth is that if you strive to get on the list, you will never make the list because that's one thing being a part of the list and now being on the board for, for the 30 under 30 group, they strongly discourage is asking to be on the list, is trying to be on the list, is branding yourself to become part of the Forbes 30 under 30 group. The more and more you ask for it, the less and less they look at you. The advice I have for anyone that wants to be recognized on any type of major accolade or award is just put your head down, do what you do best, trust that if you're successful enough, people will recognize you and do it. Sure, are there ways that you can hire media companies to write about you and do all the do it do it that way and you know cheat your way to it? And I'm sorry I do call it cheating because I think that people that just pay media companies to build accolades for themselves I don't think that that's that's honest. Anyone can do that. I can do that. You can do that. If you're really good at what you do, the world will discover you. And of course, you have to brand yourself and you have to put yourself out there. But I think that if you're really good at what you do, then people will discover you and people will chase you. It's similar to chasing money, right? If you chase money, it runs away. But if you focus on your craft and you're passionate and you're smart and you have a little bit of luck, then it all flows in. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think let the results speak for itself, right? Just yes. keep doing what you're doing. If you have a purpose in running your business, for example, for, for Zenith, my purpose has always been to help people out. It's never been anything further than that, not for popularity, not for reputation, not for to be rich and famous. If you just continue doing what you're doing and focus on the purpose, focus on the passion, then the results will speak for itself. Yes. And I also think everything happens for a reason. So when you started this restaurant, did you have, or even now, do you have any regrets in getting- I would there? say, yes, of course. There are definitely regrets, but I would say as a whole, no, of course, no regrets. But in terms of things I would have possibly done differently, one thing I would have definitely done a little differently is paid more attention from the, from the get-go about the nitty gritty about actually running a business. This is kind of probably the boring part and people want to hear about more broad-based, interesting things that they can they can take back home. But business is really not as beautiful as people say it is, right? I always equate it to a circus show. I'm the ringmaster. We put the hat on, dim the lights, and it's showtime. But behind that, there's a lot of small details that if you're not getting right, will drown you. And I'll give you an example. One of the biggest regrets I do have is not understanding taxes properly, not understanding how to have a good accountant, not understanding New York State labor and insurance laws. 
I never did anything wrong, but I just didn't get it. And I assumed I'd figure it out. And I realized that that there's a reason accountants make a lot of money. There's a reason tax consultants make a lot of money. There's a reason attorneys make a lot of money because that stuff is hard. And if you're running a business, you really can't take that on yourself. So you need to learn how to delegate certain things out to professionals. And I didn't know how to do that the first two to three years of my business. I was filing my taxes with TurboTax and then getting things wrong and then having to call the IRS and explain myself. Or on the flip side, not understanding what the best type of workers' comp insurance was. So I was overpaying. Small things like that can really affect your bottom line and also mentally stress you out. Because if you have no idea how to file taxes, how to hire attorneys to make sure that all your labor laws are intact, or how to make sure that your insurances are all covered and making sure your business is fully covered from anything, that bad that can happen. Actually, one, one quick story I have is right when I opened the restaurant, October 26th, my mom's birthday, I opened the restaurant. Guess what happened a week later? Hurricane Sandy. My windows got blown oh, out. Oh, no. Yeah. My windows got blown out. And I didn't know if my insurance covered it. Thankfully, it did. But it was because I had bought some stupid expensive insurance. I just thought that was the norm. After it covered my insurance, I had recognized that, okay, thank God I had good insurance. But am I overpaying? Am I underpaying? Am I paying just the right amount? I didn't know. So I had to start shopping for insurance. All those little things that you don't think about when you're opening a business are so important and just as important as your product and your branding and your employees. I definitely agree. And speaking about taxes, it's tax season, guys. So make sure you file your taxes. <laughs> yeah. For all of you listening, if you guys had some, you know, those, those 10 baggers that Doug was giving out, make sure you kept 30% of that to the side. <laughs> yep. Let's shift gears. And I want to talk about the future for you. For your personal life, for your business, what are some of the future goals that you have for the restaurant group or even yourself? So for the restaurant group right now, we're working on unveiling a partnership with a vineyard. We're going to be rolling out a line of in-house wines. We're going to be having two white wines. Yeah, two white wines, two red wines that are going to be branded for us specifically. We're working with a vineyard out in California. We'll be rolling that out hopefully in the early summer, right in time for you know the outdoor dining season. So that's super exciting. We'll also be planning for a retail line of sauces, chutneys, pickled mm-hmm. items. That should be launching in 2022. That's about it for the restaurant industry. I don't see myself scaling up into more restaurants, to be honest. The restaurant industry is very difficult to scale unless you're working from a franchise perspective and a very executable business plan that anyone could handle. My business is very personable. People know me by name. I know my clients by name. And I really think that there's a charm in just knowing what you do and focusing on that and making it better and better as opposed to just trying to grow outwards. Sometimes vertical growth is a lot better than horizontal growth and you have to recognize when and where to take growth. So uh, right now I'm shifting my focus to just growing out into proximity-based businesses like, you know, retail, the the wines, cocktails, branded stuff. So that, you know, that's going to be fun. Quick shout out to MKC Threads, who's been helping me out with some branding and help me out with some products from my restaurant. So that's been great. So we'll be doing that for the restaurant. In terms of new projects that that I'm working on, the biggest one, and actually I'd like to say that Zenith is the first public forum that I'll be announcing this on. So so Zenith Hour is getting the exclusive TMZ scoop on this, but um, you know <laughs> I'll be um, hoping for a mid to late 2021 this year launch for the what I'm calling the first ever venture capital and venture philanthropy firm in New York. Uh, that's going to be called Nagpal Capital. It's going to be run by me and my LPs. And for those of you that don't know what LPs are, they're limited partners or investors. And I've got an amazing board of investors. I've got an art curator. I've got a real estate mogul. I've got a venture capitalist, of course. I've got wealth managers. I've got a really interesting mix of people that are really big on our main goal, which is, and the reason why I say we're going to be the first, the differentiator for my firm is going to be that we are actually focused heavily on providing investment opportunities and education to underprivileged and underserved youth and communities, as opposed to being your classic venture capital firm that's going to be 
just taking an investment through other private equity firms or other VC firms or angel funds and et cetera, et cetera, we are actually going to be holding 10 to 20%, depending on the deal, 10 to 20% of our funds and dedicating those funds to only providing opportunity to underserved and underprivileged youth and communities. So the way that's going to work, and the reason why we're doing it is because if I was, when I was 18 years old and I had, let's say two or 300 bucks, being the guy I was when I was 18, I was always a very ambitious person. I always wanted to know how to make an extra dollar. If I was taught and given the tools of investment and knowing that there's a whole world out there where I could put in some money and get out more money with just learning, I feel like I would have loved that. But unfortunately, growing up where I did, like a lot of us, you don't really have that outlet. You don't have a mentor that could teach you about stocks or teach you about investments or teach you about real estate or teach you about investing in businesses from the ground up, seed stage, round funding, pre-seed funding, angel investing, series A, B, C, pre-IPO to IPO. Imagine if someone just taught you that when you're 18. I want to be the guy that goes into those underserved communities and teaches that. And I want to take it a step further by actually giving them the opportunity to invest in the fund. So 10 to 20% of the fund will be held for only investments coming from those avenues. And more importantly, we're going to be matching those investments from those kids. So that way, if an investment goes south, those kids never lose their money. My goal is not to take their money. My goal is to grow their money. And we're not going to grow it through equities and options. No, we'll be growing it through actual tangible businesses, whether they're digital businesses, whether they're online businesses, whether they're brick and mortar. If it fits our investment platform and we are investing in it, we will give the opportunity to the underprivileged and underserved communities to invest with us. And we will guarantee the funds because our goal is to show them that there's a way out of their situation. There's a way out of poverty. There's a way out of low income housing. There's a way out of drug dealing. There's a way out of fighting your way to the top. Let's build the path together. Let's grow all of you together. And this way, when you are 21, 22, maybe you come out of college with no debt, or maybe you come out with less debt because we taught you how to make money, or maybe you don't go to college because you fell in love with this industry. Whatever it is that we can do to make sure that you can grow, we're going to do that. So we are going to be the first venture capital, venture philanthropy firm that's actually holding a set amount of our funds and matching those funds and guaranteeing those funds to the underprivileged youth and communities. And people ask, well, how do you know they're underprivileged, underprivileged or underserved? Well, my answer to that is simply, I will be personally making the presentations and choosing the communities that we'll be making the presentations to. I'm not going to be planning to go into high wealth income areas. I'd be going to the downtrodden the projects, the high schools that don't have the funding for these programs, entrepreneur programs, finance programs, and giving the presentations and letting them know that we're here for them. Because that's the type of school I went to. That's the type of middle school I went to. I didn't take an entrepreneur class until I was a senior in high school. That's far, far too late for kids. They should be learning these things when they're in middle school, when they can grasp. If my parents can give me $2 to go to the lunchroom and spend it on chips and soda, I should also be being taught how to take 50, 50 cents of that and doing other things. That's my goal. We're going to be launching it probably mid to late this year. We're just waiting for some things to come in on the legal end. You're, you're going to hear a lot about us and you're going to be seeing it. For all of you listening in on this call, if you're ever interested in talking more about it, you know, you know where to reach me and we'll be happy to grow together. That's amazing. I love what you're doing because it's also similar to what my personal outlook is for Zenith as a brand outside of the group itself. These are the things that you don't get taught in school. Yeah. You don't get taught about investing in school. I didn't take my first entrepreneurship class until I was a senior in college, believe it or not. <laughs> I wish I was able to learn all of that in school rather than learning about calculus and algebra. I don't know the last time I calculated derivative of a formula. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I would love to learn about that stuff as I was young. And the whole financial literacy is what I would like to share with people too. As kids, it's great to get started young and early and not make the same mistakes that I've done when I was younger. So I, I love your idea. I love what you're doing. And I wish you the best on that too. Thank you. Thank you. I think we've had an amazing podcast episode today. I do want to close it off with something for the audience. Sean, you've been pretty successful in your life. You've gone through your failures. You've experienced many ups and downs in your own career and personal life as well. 
What advice would you provide to the audience in their own pursuit of entrepreneurship or just their regular nine to five or anything else that they're doing in life? My advice is simple. And it's something that I, I strongly encourage all of you to take to heart, which is, I know this is cliche, but be unapologetically you. And the reason I say that is because authenticity is the most intangible asset you have. Don't ever try to be someone you're not. Don't try to be the next Bill Gates. Don't try to be the next Doug. Don't try to be the next whoever you look up to. It's always good to have goals. It's always good to have inspiration. It's always good to have a blueprint of what you want to be. Be who you truly are and allow that to shape whatever business, whatever career, whatever person you are. Because one thing I've learned in life is that the second you try to impress others or the second you try to be like others, you lose yourself instantly. And it's a slippery slope because once you lose yourself, you can lose a lot of other things. You can lose friends, you can lose your mental sanity, you can lose money, you can lose anything. Be yourself, be authentic. If you don't know the answer to something, say you don't know, go find out. Don't try and just impress people for the sake of doing it. And more importantly, don't try to be someone else because you think that person is so smart, so successful. Everyone's got their flaws. Everyone's got their unique characteristics that make them them. And that's what will make you successful. Because if we were all the same, then we'd all be rich. We'd all be poor or we'd all be right in the middle. All I can say is be you, be authentic, don't apologize about it, and be a kind person. One thing I've always joked around about is that some people tell me, well, I'm an asshole and at least I know I'm an asshole. Yeah, but that doesn't make it right. Try your best to be you while being a good person and anything you want to achieve is within your grasp. If you can handle those two things, then you're you're mentally 90% of the way there. I 100 million percent agree with that. One thing I wanted to add to that is do not compare yourself to other people. Yeah. I think it's, it's so important because some people try to chase this image of someone else that they're not. It tends to not work in their favor. So don't compare yourself to other people. Focus on yourself. At the end of the day, your growth is most important. Yeah. It's good to have tunnel vision when it comes to your own growth, which is okay. But also be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Don't come off as cocky all the time. Don't think that you know it all. If you don't know something, that's fine. Let that be your path to growth and learning something new and ask. And it's endearing, right? It's endearing right. when you hear somebody that you think is the smartest person on the planet and they say, I don't know. It's one of the most refreshing things right. to hear. And I'll tell you, going back to the VC thing with my LPs, they are four to five of the most intelligent people I've ever met. And they are all extremely successful. But I can't tell you how many times we'll be on a Zoom call and they all say, I don't know. And it's shocking because you're just like, well, how can you not know? You guys are, some of these guys are 75 years old. And I'm thinking in my head saying, you've been through everything. How do you not know? And they say, well, we just don't know. We'll have to find out. And it's just, it makes you, it makes you realize that you can also not know. Right. Awesome. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining this podcast. I think this went extremely well. I think the audience can learn a lot. And I love the fact that we went through your failures and what led to your success, because that's essentially the important part of this entire podcast series. Because yeah. success isn't always what you see. It's kind of like that iceberg analogy. <laughs> you yeah. see the, the iceberg yeah. when you're on the boat, but you don't see how far down it goes underwater. Exactly. Exactly. And before I go, I just want to say, Doug, thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on and then talk to everybody in Zenith and those who aren't and are listening in. I, it was a great time. And I think Zenith Hour is going to be awesome. And I'd like to just say one last thing, and it's something that I live by. And it's a little story that I think everyone should memorize. It goes like this. So it actually came from my sister, who's a nurse, and you guys may have read it in many places because it's a well-known story, but they asked a nurse, what is something you hear most often before someone passes away or they're on their deathbed in your hospital? And the nurse said, the thing I hear the most often is I regret so much not doing what I was passionate about and what I loved in life and instead doing what everyone wanted me to do. The reason they say that is because when you're on your deathbed or when you are at the finality of your life. Imagine if all the ghosts of all the dreams and aspirations you've ever had were there in that room with you. 
would they be angry with you or would they be happy with you? Would they be angry and say, because you're dying, we have to die with you now. You wanted to be a billionaire and here I am, the billionaire version of you, but I'm dying because you never chased it and now you're dying too. Here's the chef version of you. You wanted to be the world's greatest chef, but you never chased it. And now you're dying. You're at the, the twilight of your life and I must die with you. I never even had a chance to live. Or would they be in that room with you saying, you fulfilled our dreams. We're here, we're alive. And now you're dying, but you're leaving a legacy. So that's what I wanna leave everybody with. Think about where you're at in your life. Think about if the ghosts of every dream you've ever had were in your room right now, would they be upset with you or would they be proud of you? And if they're not proud of you, you need to change something. 100% agree. The feeling of regret of not doing something that you wanted to do is way worse than regretting doing it. Absolutely. That's the perfect way to end it. Yep. That's what I genuinely believe. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was amazing. We will have another guest speaker for episode three. I hope you guys enjoyed this and, and learned something from it. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone.